Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi Marjorie. Hey Claire, how are you today? Not too bad. I can't believe we're in February already. Me neither. I feel like lockdown and homeschooling is that kind of time you're stuck in the house so you just get everything done. I don't know about you. You're pretty organised generally though, aren't you? I wouldn't say I'm that organised, but certainly I've been spending a lot more time in the house recently. Those little drawers, you know, the drawer of doom. It might, <laughs> the junk drawer. We call yeah. it the junk drawer. And we call it the drawer of doom in our house. <laughs> it is doom, but it's also the place you're likely to find the thing you're looking for. It's only doom because it takes you about three hours to actually sort it out and go through it. Um, I feel like the drawer of doom needs to be tackled this month. It's one of those jobs you have to actually, un- you know, those drawers that have clipped in and you can't pull them right out. You've got to get your fingers in the back and unclip the hinges and then just tip the whole thing onto the kitchen table. Sounds like a lot of work to me. I was laughing today, though, when I was sorting out bits and pieces in my house, wondering if, you know, by the end of this year, it's hard to look ahead. We're all trying not to look ahead too much. But I wonder if by the end of this year, all of our houses will be minging and in a total mess because we'll have spent so much of 2020 and a bit of 2021 being locked in that we'll all just go, ah, life's for living. (laughs) When we're finally allowed out again, then none of us will ever do the hoovering or washing again. I don't know whether it'll be like a crisis of messiness. So although you and I have done a really good job getting into the out of doors, trying to get as much light as possible. When my kids were little and not in school, it was always my time to return home to California where my parents were to get a bit of light. But that's just not possible for so many reasons these days. So Claire and I have been out trying to catch the light, doing the mad thing of getting freezing cold seawater. Yeah, not just freezing cold seawater, breaking the ice to get into freezing cold reservoirs. I have to say, it was a really fun day and I did enjoy it and I felt great after my dip. But when we got there and the reservoir was actually frozen over and my husband had messaged me to say, you know, drive carefully, blah, blah, blah. And I had replied saying, oh, the reservoir's freezing cold. And he'd said, what, are you going to go for a walk instead? (laughs) And he couldn't quite believe it when I said, nope, Margie's taking the ice axe at the boot of her car and is currently breaking the ice so that we can get in. I have to say, I did not have an ice axe in the boot of my car, so it was just as well that you did in yours. There has to be a Shackleton amongst us. Come on, it was really fun. And what was really fun is, yeah, other people were there doing the same thing. I've since been back in the snow on my own and I'm going to encourage you to keep doing it because it's just, yeah, and part of it is the fun of it and as long as you're safe and you know know what you're doing and aren't staying in too long but a lot of it is just getting that light you know when you're in a place like that or in the sea the sky is so open it's so different than living in, being in the middle of the city and for me that makes a huge or it has made a huge difference the last couple of winters so hopefully it'll keep making a difference through february which for me is the hardest month of the year because it's we're not quite into spring yet and we're sufficiently far from the holidays that that's kind of worn off so February is the day for being out as much as possible. Watch out, Claire. So shall we turn to our story for for today? Our theme for the month is home. And sorry for those of you that are fed up of your homes, but we're just trying to think about what it means to be at home and not necessarily the physical space of home, although we all know those very well these days, but just what it means to be at home, what it means to be in a place or from a place, what your memories do to your sensation of home and belonging, which is something I'm interested in. So today's story is by Jane Archer. And we've paired it with an Emily Dickinson poem. And again, it's one of the pieces of new writing that we have brought on just specifically for this Unbound program. So we're delighted to be able to share it with you and thank Jane for that. 
Claire, are you going to get us started? Yeah, let me start today. Someone else's house. Jane Archer. We were late to meet Joachim at the reception door. His eyes were badly bloodshot. We got into the truck and had no problem passing through the gates and away. The driver said that President Museveni had stayed the night at the lodge and had left early in the morning. He rubbed his head. No one got much sleep. Why was he here? Elke asked. The driver kept his eyes on Elke. We don't talk of these things, he said. Talking makes words come alive, gives them wings to fly to dangerous places. I put a hand on Elke's thigh and he looked down. The journey back was done in silence. Now and then we stopped to take a photo of trees with scarlet flowers or cattle with heads weighed down by the longest of horns. On the outskirts of Kampala, Joachim said there was enough time to look for my old house again, that he had asked around, and now he knew how to find it. I thought of the square brick building with a view over the city where every day had warmth, where I saw a wall of rain arrive not long after I did, where I moved about in cool rooms and had a pet tortoise, and where a woman looked after me, who shared her dishes of matoke and bean sauce when it was her day off. Wakim watched me in the rear view mirror as, for the final time, we travelled along the Entebbe Road. We took several sharp bends as we went up into a hill and I knew it was waiting for us. We sat outside the gate and Joachim turned around to see me nod. He called over to a man in the garden who waved at us. The Bugandan conversation was short and amicable as the gates opened. The engine revved and we sped forward swinging around the carbuncle mound that led to the house. An old lady came out and bowed to Elke and me. Wakim asked if we could see inside the house as I started to squeeze the street in front of me. She doesn't mind if you go inside, Wakim said, but she's embarrassed as the house is not in good repair. They have little money. It doesn't feel right, I said. He looked at me with a patience he might reserve for his children, if he had them. It's too late to change your mind, he said. If you wish to thank her, you can buy one of her son's paintings he keeps in the garage, and no one feels bad. The woman smiled and spoke in English. Come, she said. Should we stop there? Yeah, I've read this story a few times ahead of today, and I'm still trying to work out what's happening in the beginning of it. Obviously, she's gone back to a childhood home, but... Yeah, I'm not sure who the I is. And this is something I'm interested in. You know, we often put ourselves in the stories, right, that we read. That's part of, for me, the magic of the story is a kind of empathy machine is you're, you become the I in the story. And for me, it makes a lot of sense because it reminds me of what it might like be like to go back to a childhood home in Iran. And particularly, you know, a specific home in the north that we had on the sea. When she's describing the memories of that, I would probably come up with a similar litany. But the bit that sort of puts me off at the beginning is the discussion of politics. And I guess in it, somewhere like Iran, that would be true too. You just don't talk about it. It's just never discussed. And the idea that you've got a driver 
who you are asking presumably to pull over to take pictures of trees with flowers or cattle. So I'm just, I was spending that time you were reading, trying to again, reposition these characters and figure out almost what's the power balance here. Yeah. And for me, where are they in time? Are they at the end of a trip back or are they there for a different purpose? Are they on their way home? We, we hear that it's, we traveled along in Tebby Road for the final time. Uh, the timeline is not clear. Maybe it's because she knows she's not likely to get back there is what I assume. But what I find interesting is the journey back was done in silence. Initially, I thought, does that mean she's going back to the place that she was in earlier that week? Or is it? And it's clear that that isn't true now. But so it's a journey back to her memories, you know, back to Kampala, really, I guess. And you're saying she. I wasn't convinced it was she who was narrating. That's interesting. Well, let's see, because, yeah, I don't know, in my head, maybe it's because it's Jane, and I know it's a piece of fiction, but an Elkie is a he. Yeah. And so I assume she's gone with, you know, her partner or someone. The eye puts a hand on Elkie's thigh. That's quite an intimate gesture, I would think. Unless Elkie's a child. That's true. But I don't think you talk about politics with a child in the car. Certainly not in a place like Uganda. You wouldn't, you know, if you were hoping to ask, engage in a political discussion, you probably, we would do it in the West, but I don't, I'm not sure. You certainly wouldn't do it in Iranian culture. And it brought back for me, you know, even when I look at pictures of our home in the North, I can almost feel the warmth or the smell or the, you know, they say that memory is so much about sensation. I can still picture the roses in the garden and the digging for treasure or whatever it was we did as children. I have very specific, it's almost like memory has become a bit of a photograph. And then I wonder why she doesn't want to go in. Is it an embarrassment, shyness? I guess there's a sense of it not being hers anymore. You know, maybe wanting to hold on to the memory. I remember from moving out of the house that I spent most of my primary years in and moving into a slightly bigger house because my dad needed a workspace from home. But it was very nearby. It was just around the corner. In fact, friends of my parents bought it. And so there were occasions when there was opportunities for us to go back to the house and I never wanted to go back. I never wanted to see what they'd done to it and how they'd changed it and how it was different. I mean, admittedly, that was as a child. So presuming that the I in the story is an adult. But I wonder if there's a little element of that wanting to hold the memory as it is. Yeah, although I think the eyes asked to go there. Yeah. No one else would have dreamed up that idea. So the eyes asked to go and see it. And we know that Joaquim has figured out where it is, that he now knew where to find it, which made me think he'd been asked before and said, I don't know how to get there. So I think for me, it's much more of a, you know, the instinct to go back to a place is born out of curiosity but also there's a bit of selfishness there about I want to have a little walk down memory lane and selfish is too strong a word but self-interested maybe whereas I think when she arrives at the gate and sees the owner is she suddenly realizes she's intruding you know that her own interest in reliving memories is possibly not as great as the imposition or the burden or the kind of embarrassment that she might cause. It's an interesting question about the West. I assume the eye is Western here, the Western world, and then the ways that we do things. And then when he comes straight up face to face with different cultures or different ways of living, we're, we're just, we're really slow to think ahead, if that makes sense. And have you ever been back to your home in the North? No, I've never been back to Iran. So my parents went back at one point during the Obama administration when there weren't any hostages and um, or and there was no one was in jail. And so there was a real relative moment of calm. And the caretaker of the property, Khadija and her husband, Enola, who had looked after it for us 
since we left were getting old you know they moved into the house and took care of it and I think they just want it was too much for them so I think in a moment my parent in a, in a safe moment relatively safe moment my parents both went back which is remarkable to think of now and sold the property and took care of them as well um, made sure that they were looked after and had a place to be and other things and then came out again so they've been back but no I've never been back and I, as you say I'm not sure I'd want to go back because it's such a magical place in my memory that I'm not sure I'd want it to change because I'm sure I'm absolutely certain it would have been changed because somebody bought it to build a big property on it so you know what I remember won't be there anymore mm. rereading that little section she's embarrassed as the house is not in good repair I think maybe gives us the the link to it doesn't feel right as you said, rather than it being a sort of not wanting to indulge their own memories, it being suddenly realising that it's quite an imposition. But I'm not sure she would be able to tell that from the gate. I wonder too, when they're, when they're speaking in Bugandan, if it's the language that reminds her, that sharps her right out of her own kind of reverie and reminds her that she things have moved on and she's not part of it anymore. You know, if that's the distance that kind of makes her realise. Because if they're standing in a gate, they're not necessarily even able to see the house from the gate so I'm not sure she would know that it's not in good repair I wonder if it's just her feeling an outsider in that conversation that makes her realize it definitely leaves lots of great questions and kind of for me it brings up huge images of what it might look like and but those are all relating to my own experiences as a child will we read on and see what happens next yeah let's do that I went through the garage and up the stairs that took me into a square room that was the hall and dining room Everything looked so much smaller than before. The old woman pointed to an entrance, and I had a quick look inside the living room where my father had listened to Kathleen Ferrier on a record player that had travelled from Scotland. I cannot let you go upstairs, she said, pulling a piece of blue cloth across her shoulders. I was about to go downstairs again when she took my hand and said we would leave the other way, through the dining room hall to a netted door, that I could still feel and smell from childhood. Passing the same window where my pet chameleon would flip out its strip of tongue for a fly. My husband and I had this house built and rented it to your father. I stopped walking. We were doctors, working in Jinja, and my husband said he was Scottish. She opened the door and... As I walked through, I saw my brother rolling around on his yellow tractor and my sister jumping off the balcony to prove she could do it. I looked up to the dust patch garden and saw the familiar cement hut, smaller than a garage, but not big enough for cows or horses. I knew inside that box, its window the length and width of a grown man's face, the thin mattress near the floor next to the wall, pots and pans huddled in the corner a side room that had a hole in the ground. Outside the door, a small pit for fires. That's where the woman, Rosie, who looked after us, lived. The old woman tapped my arm as a shadow appeared outside the hut. Rosie, who wasn't my relative but who fed us, cleaned our clothes, sang songs to my brother, her little moom-boom, who had hung him over the balcony to hear him shriek and told me that I would be the first to die out of my siblings, of a very long and drawn-out, awful disease. Rosie, who was 26, who had one day off a week, who lived so far from her own children and rarely if ever saw them, who sent her earnings to her own parents for their upkeep. I wondered if her children, her boom-booms, remembered her. 
I walk quickly along the side paving stones, down the outside steps to the truck. I'm almost in when I get out again and go into the garage. Four or five easels are strewn around the room and there are canvases everywhere. Joachim appeared at my side. Choose one, he said. I picked the one with the long, horn cows and left the money on a table near the entrance. The old woman looked a little confused at my upset but said nothing. She simply bowed again and left. We drove on to the airport in silence. At the terminal, I got out of the jeep and gave Joachim an envelope with the tip. He opened it, nodded and shook my hand. You two must take care of each other, he said, and as he began to walk away, he turned around. My name is James. James Joachim. Safe journey home. So we do know now that they're leaving and they've, they've been for a visit a short time, but I still wasn't 100% sure of that right up till the very end when they're on the way to the airport. Yeah, we know that, and we know that she's Scottish. But I wonder why she's tearful. Yeah, I mean, the old woman doesn't understand the upset, looks confused at the upset. And I have to admit, I was a bit confused at what it was that had upset her as well, unless it was just the fact that she was back there and she was just overwhelmed by the memories. Yeah, because the memories that she describes aren't necessarily negative. You know, a brother rolling around and a sister jumping. And Do you think there's a sense of loss then, a sense of feeling that that's a door that's closed and that she'll no longer feel like this country is her home. I wonder too if there's a sense, well, it would be for me. So again, we're always, I'm always projecting myself into stories. But, you know, if there's a sense that the way that you were raised and the way that you grew up isn't necessarily, I don't want to say the right way, but it's so different from the way we live here in the West. So I, I had someone looking after me too as a girl in Iran. And I wonder if the discussion of Rosie here and the fact that she was 26 and had children of her own who she'd never saw just hit home for her in a way that it might not have when she was a little girl. I mean, I do have a sense, though, of the narrator being an outsider through most of the story. When the conversation happens at the gate, when the conversation about politics happens, and even in the, the relationship between the woman whose house she's in and her, it's Wakim who's the sort of intermediary who bridges the space. And the narrator, for me, feels very much set outside she doesn't feel part of the story at all or part of the experience she's part of the story but not part of the, the experience of what's happening she's sort of observing it rather than being it and I, i'm not actually even convinced of her willingness to do that she seems surprised that the owner of the house is a doctor and that she was the one who actually she and her husband were the ones who built the house because she says you know i stopped walking as if that was a real shock to her and so i wonder whether her own preconceptions are being hit, you know, right there. And the transaction where she pays for the picture feels very awkward and distant as well. I mean, she puts the money on the table. It doesn't feel like she takes care to choose the one that she likes best. It feels a bit like she just picks one. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's quite cultural. So we don't really know whether they're even for sale, which is kind of interesting. She wasn't going to object. You know, you're not going to, if someone thinks they're buying a painting off you, unless it's something that you're desperate to keep, you know, she's not going to object to this Westerner coming in her house. But I'm not sure that the, the woman's response is one of gratitude. No. Because she just looks upset. She looks a little confused and bows and leaves. Even the discussion of the long-horned cows. I didn't mention it earlier, but... You know, when she says they stop to take pictures of scarlet flowers and cows, their horns are too heavy and they can't lift their heads. Well, there's a part of me that thinks 
really? <laughs> you know, I'm not really sure that that's true. It just feels like a kind of sentimentalized version of what you'd expect. Yeah, mm. I'm, I'm not sure that's nature's greatest design to have a cow who can lift her head. <laughs> so it makes me think, well, that's just a way of putting your spin on it, you know, which is, oh, they all have their heads up. It's probably because it's really hot, you know, and they're keeping close to the ground or whatever. I mean, I'm no animal expert, but the fact that she observes it that way and chooses the image of the cow is interesting because again, I think it's about how you see things. So when you look at the longhorn cows and decide that the reasons their head is down because their horns are too heavy, that's her version of what's happening. And does that cast doubt on the rest of the narrative then? If we don't believe her about the longhorned cows and their heads being too heavy and we don't believe her about whether the driver would pull over or whether we would want a driver to continually pull over do we then doubt her recollection of the rest of the narrative for me that was about just the power imbalance of someone getting in the back of a car and saying pull over i want to take a picture of that tree pull over i want to take a picture of that cow you in the worst kind of touristy way which you can imagine happens and does happen you know all over the world and and i've engaged in it too you know in india having someone drive me out to the tea plantation i remember saying please i want to take a picture so you know but i've only done that once and i remember being so aware of having done it I've never done it again nor have I ever been driven around in a car by anyone but I do feel like the choice of the image is really interesting and there's something in the last exchange at the airport I mean for me that seems to redress that power imbalance that we feel at the beginning yeah it either redresses it or he's trying to redress it by saying don't call me Joaquim effectively my name is James yeah but there's something about that sentence about the tip the tip in the envelope that he opens nods shoot my hand I think that act of opening the tip because it's sealed in an envelope for it's not you know sort of a handed off note from one shaken hand to another which you sometimes see tips handed over in that manner it's given in an envelope part of me imagines that the intention would be to disguise the amount and and to put it away and for him to open it once they'd left but he doesn't he opens it then and there and checks it out and nods which for me feels like he's you know accepts it and he thinks it's a fair amount for his efforts and then he shakes their hands for me it felt like an act of distrust but I, also if you're a person having spent time driving people around you don't have anything to lose he's not likely to see them again although he he has we know he's seen them before because this time he knows how to get there but for me saying my name is James feels like him either becoming more familiar with them so he's allowing them to use his Christian name or the more sinister view is he's reminding them that he's a human too that actually I'm not just Joaquim yeah I mean that was my sensation the sinister view and I like the fact that the story ends there because we just don't know whether what happens next or how it's taken on board it's a nice you two must take care of each other is an interesting thing to say and so maybe it is kindness maybe he's bringing them in to his world you know in the sense of being kind kindness opens doors doesn't it it's not a shutting off and it, it makes me think that he senses the upset that we hear mentioned earlier. Well, he obviously, did he see her cry? I don't think he did. You're all into sinister and crying today. But even that safe journey home for me is slightly laden in the sense of this is not your home. You're going back where you belong. It's a, it's a real throwaway comment. You know, it doesn't stay in touch or let me know. It's a safe journey. But it's a really interesting way of thinking about home, isn't it? It's been a really nice um, story to have since we're all have spent so much time in our homes. It's a different way of thinking about our childhoods and how we might re-inhabit them and imagining visiting them, even if even if we can't, you know, what that might be like, what you would be looking for, and what you remember. And I think it is interesting to think about the things that stay with you the things that you do remember, as opposed to the things that your parents might have wanted you to remember.
Shall we read the poem that goes with it? Yeah, this is one that Jane picked out and it's Home by Emily Dickinson. Years I had been from home and now, before the door I dared not open, lest a face I never saw before stare vacant into mine and ask my business there. My business, just a life I left, was such still dwelling there? I fumbled at my nerve, I scanned the windows near, the silence like an ocean rolled and broke against my ear. I laughed a wooden laugh that I could fear a door, who danger and the dead had faced, but never quaked before. I fitted to the latch my hand with trembling care, lest back the awful door should spring and leave me standing there. I moved my fingers off as cautiously as glass and held my ears and like a thief fled gasping from the house. Well, this one is sinister. It is sinister. (laughs) No getting away from that. No Pollyanna here. Come on. No, exactly. But but this that same idea of going back to somewhere where you'd previously lived. But there's a sense of dread in this poem. What is she scared of? It's really interesting to think of it in two different ways. As if like the story we just read, as if it was going back to a former home where someone else lives. Or even that time, you know, like going back to your own home where your family might still live. You know, is there a sense of you're not really sure where you're going to find yourself in a family gathering and in a place that you know, like that idea of returning to? I would probably just before I went go in, have that sense of what am I going to find? How will things have changed? But also they'll be the same. They'll be really familiar, but there will be, which makes the other things really obvious. So I think there is that kind of intake of breath when you're going back to a place, even if the people who always lived in it still live in it. So I'm not convinced she's not going back to her own family home in this case. Were you assuming that her family had moved to a different house? Yeah, I was thinking it felt to me like it was it was quite a long time since she'd been in it, but also that she didn't expect to find much familiarity when she opened the door. I also had a sense that it wasn't a happy home. It wasn't somewhere that she had good memories. I mean, there's there's a sense of, you know, that fear feels to me like it comes from things that have happened there in the past. My hand with trembling care, lest the door should spring. For me, that fearing the door is fearing the entry, fearing that crossing over a boundary or crossing into a different time. It's not necessarily fearing a place. It's fearing that transition into to memory. So in the story, it would have been fearing crossing. And maybe that is what, you know, maybe that's what Jane meant in the story about her, the eye in that story bottling it and saying it doesn't feel right maybe it's that same fear that's in this poem of not wanting to cross that boundary not wanting to go back I didn't for me the house itself doesn't hold anything negative it's either being unsure of what she's going to find in it or not wanting to do go through that act of going back again and it is going back you know they always say look forward look in the don't stop looking in the rearview mirror so you know you've got to look forward as to how things will be but for me that transition back is is usually quite a positive thing it's usually oh remember the time remember we used to do x y and z you know just the other day i was looking for a button on for to sew on a pair of jeans and i was thinking about my granny's button box and thinking oh that used to be the first thing that when i went into her house i would look for but for me that that transitioning back to memory doesn't have the negative connotations that i feel in this poem 
And so therefore, maybe what I'm doing is looking for an alternative thing to pin the negatives onto. And therefore, I'm thinking, well, if it's if it's not the going back, it must be the house itself, it must be what she's fearful of finding. Maybe it's fearful of not finding what she wants to find. Maybe it's fearful of change. Or just not being the same person she was when she left. You know, and I think there is a period in adolescence and young adulthood where you... You know, I remember it vividly going away and to university or your first job or whatever, and you really get to become whoever you want to be. And I remember really that dawning on me that I was no longer, you know, the daughter of my parents who are lovely people, but that I, I could literally remake myself into whoever I wanted. And the freedom in that was remarkable. And not that I did actually, but being really conscious that the decisions I made about what I liked and what I wanted to do and how I spent my time and my money when I first had a job were really mine alone and being kind of almost enthralled with that. And then, you know, feeling that you kind of set yourself out and you started out and you making your way in the world and then going back to a family home and thinking, I've got to go back to being a little girl or, you know, that version of me that you raised. Now as a parent, that's a terrifying idea. But I think that line, you know, what's my business there? My business, just a life I left, was such still dwelling there. I think that's got a lot of resonance with what you've just been saying in the sense of, do you have to flip back into the life to being the person that's expected of you in that place? And, you know, I've been reflecting on that. I mean, I think my difference from a lot of my friends here is that, you know, when I go home to the States, it's a huge journey. There's a lot of jet lag. You're not going to stay for a few days. You're going to stay for a few weeks. It's really hard not to fall back into those old patterns of behavior, good or, you know, good and bad, but it, you can't remake those relationships always at this age or you have to do it in a very conscious way. So I'm conscious, you know, that when I'm there, I'm, I will very easily fall back into patterns of, you know, nice things, but you go back to being the people you were when you were lived together, when you stay longer. And the difference between that and a lot of my British friends is, you know, they don't see their parents for three weeks at a time in the same place. You know, they might see them for a long weekend or at most they might take them on holiday with them for a week, but they're certainly not going back to their homes and living under their parents' roof for more than a few days at a time. And I, I'm really conscious of how that, that length of time shifts the balance, even at my age. So I can imagine as a young woman, Emily Dickinson would feel she maybe, for me, has had gone out and made something different of herself and that fear of the door is the worry that you wouldn't be able to hold that new form of yourself in a place that expects you to be in a different form, as it were. And I think you're right that that fear is multiplied under the roof at home. So, you know, if you do go away on holiday or go away for a long weekend or whatever, you're almost on neutral territory. So it's easier to be your new version. And, you know, a couple of days you can manage it. But yeah, I think you just become, for me, become conscious of it the longer you stay and the harder it is to not fall back into those same routines. And as I say, some of them are not negative. It's offering to get your dad a cup of tea because that's all what you always did as a kid. And, you know, they're not, they're not negative things. It's just I'm really aware of it, I think, because of the way I travel to get home. Yeah. That was a great pick to go with the story. Yeah, it? it was a really, really perfect match. And really, that's one of the things I've really enjoyed about these pieces of writing is that we've asked our authors to pick um, the poems that they would like read alongside their stories. Normally, we, if we were picking a story to use in a group, we would also pick the poem. 
but it's, it's always really interesting to see which poems that our authors come up with. Yeah, and we get that joy of trying to figure out, here it's really clear, but why the pairing, which other people are having to do with when we do the pairing. So that's a, it's a real joy. And you can find the story, as well as the poems Jane's picked to go with it, on our website in the Unbound section. But you can also find some writing prompts for these new pieces of writing. They've all come with writing prompts as well, if you're a writer or want to even just try your hand at writing about memories and home there are three writing prompts there for you as well as a whole plethora of other materials on home and ideas for ways to read around it and write around it and get involved in groups our groups talking around the subject of home this month and if you would rather rather than looking at the website to find the stories and poems each month if you would like it delivered into your inbox you can sign up by email to receive our newsletter it comes out every week and it has details of our groups that are running and, and little bits of information. And once a month, we have our big bumper edition with all the stories and poems that you can sign up for. So you can do that at our website, which is openbookreading.com. Um, you'll find them on the website, but this, this is just if you'd like to sign up to get them into your inbox. I think that's all from us today. Thanks so much for having us in your ears. We will be doing this monthly over the course of the next few months so we really hope you'll join us for the next one but thanks for joining us today we look forward to being back in your ears soon